Hello and welcome back to the history of video games. My name is Ben and I'm joined by the one and only Wes. How you doing, Wes? I am doing great. How about you? I'm doing pretty good. I've got uh, big news this week, Wes. Ooh. I've been playing some games and uh, eating some games, some big games. Oh, man. Well, that is exciting stuff. I mean, do you want to just hop right into it? I really do, because I have just so much to talk to you about. Right. I beat a, a full RPG in one week. Whoa. Can you imagine? <laughs> um, <laughs> I was aided because it originally came out on the NES, and I was able to play it on my phone on an emulator, and the emulator has a speed up function, so that helped a lot. Nice. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but I played something I've always wanted to play. It's like one of the things that kind of made me want to do the podcast with you is playing some like old very famous games mm -hmm. and so i played the original final fantasy the very Whoa. first one. Oh, nice and i beat it in one week which was really cool and uh it's kind of reminds me of pokemon in some ways i'm gonna use that to compare a lot okay yeah <laughs> uh like you're walking around on this pixelated kind of grid-based overworld which definitely reminds me of pokemon and then whenever you're not in a town, essentially, you get into these random encounters and uh, it's a turn-based combat system, again, kind of like Pokemon. Where it differs is that in uh, Final Fantasy, you have a team of four heroes and you queue up their attacks all at the beginning of your turn. And mm -hmm. then you kind of watch the whole turn play out. And that's like the major difference, I guess. <laughs> and obviously you can't catch Pokemon, but like uh, <laughs> as far as the combat and the general mechanics go that's kind of what it is and uh as far as like what the story is like the four heroes have to like collect four orbs to do something i don't know it's, it's kind of <laughs> loose <laughs> there's not a whole lot of text in the game which is like one of the big things i have to talk to you about because it's it's a big problem <laughs> um i don't know how anybody was supposed to actually beat and play this game it seems almost impossible without using a guide I tried to look up and see, like, is there a manual that came with it or something that explained these mechanics? And uh, I just couldn't find anything. I found a game guide that was released with it, but I imagine that was sold separately, you know, as most game guides would be. But I don't know. <laughs> it seems strange. It did come out on, I think, either 86 or 87. That's not that far away from us in the timeline, wow, which is pretty crazy. crazy. Yeah. Yeah. Um, it came out on the NES, and I have to say, like, graphically and stuff, it looks really good. I mean, it looks as good, if not better, than, I would say, like, a Pokemon Gold or Silver, because it is in full color. It's not even in a grayscale or something, so it looks really good, I think, and has great pixel music, you know, 16-bit music or whatever. Mm -hmm. So, there's a lot of things I really liked about it, and because it's so like old i am imagining a lot of things it did was maybe the first time anybody saw something like that so you know there's a whole bunch of like relevance and stuff that we can't get into like we would normally on the podcast but i'm sure it's important for many reasons but just talking about the gameplay and what i thought of it the lack of text is really an issue because <laughs> throughout the game i kept running into problems where i felt like it was impossible to progress and I didn't know what to do until I looked up a guide and that helped me. So, for example, your party is a team of four heroes, right? And when you go into the battle screen, they're arranged vertically in a, in a row. And I didn't realize that the person at the top of the row will take 50% of the hits. And then the person in the second place will take 25% of the hits. And then the last two 
people in the party take only one eighth of the hits. And hmm. that makes a big difference when you have a tank in the party. Because <laughs> right. I just thought they were hitting randomly around. And, <laughs> you know, whoever was in the top party spot was probably getting killed a lot. And I just didn't know. And there's nobody, like, there's no place in the game that tells you that. <laughs> so I just had to figure that out by looking up a guide online. And there's also a lot of things like you go into a store and you can buy magic spells for your mage or whatever. But the spells are called, like, lit three and you're like what does that do right <laughs> does that like light up a cave or something no it, it calls down thunder you know it's like thunder <laughs> in pokemon or something but there's no tool tips there's no way you know that except for buying it and then trying it and seeing if you can figure out what it does i think some of them i have no idea how you would know what it does like maybe it uh makes you invulnerable to like being stunned but you would not know that. All you would see is like your mage like cast like, you know, green pixel effect. And then <laughs> it would be the next person's turn. Like, how would you know anything happened? <laughs> so seems pretty crazy. And I got, in fact, into a bit of a problem because I was going through the game like ahead of the guide. Like I was kind of using the guide only if I got stuck. Right. But otherwise I wanted to do it by myself. And I got to a point later in the game where I picked up this thing called a ribbon, which apparently is pretty common in the Final Fantasy titles. And the ribbon had, I looked up online, because again, I don't know how you would know the stats of the armors and weapons and stuff, but <laughs> the ribbon had uh, like one armor, right? And I was wearing stuff that had like 30 armor, 40 armor. So I thought, this is useless, and I just tossed it. <laughs> and apparently it like defends against all magical attacks, which is like all the main bosses at the end of oh, the game. Geez. So it's actually the best, like one of the best pieces of offensive gear in the game. And without it, I was getting like crushed. <laughs> like I was about to beat the game today. Like I was at the end of the game this morning, and I had to use save states to beat it before today's podcast because I really <laughs> wanted to beat it before the podcast. Right. But I think otherwise, if I hadn't used save states, I would have had to just like grind for levels for a while because <laughs> I threw out the best piece of armor because how was I supposed to know it was good? Because <laughs> uh, there's no tooltips. It's just crazy stuff like that. Yeah. And then one more thing I had to tell you about, Wes, is the level design, it really makes Pokemon seem like this amazing level design because... In Final Fantasy, whenever you go outside a town, everywhere is like the tall grass in Pokemon. Like any place you go, an enemy can spawn. And that's a big problem because you'll go to a dungeon and because there's no shortcuts to get back to the town to heal up again, like in Pokemon, you usually can hop over fences or just avoid the tall grass when your Pokemon are weak or something. Because that's not the case here. You can only go into the dungeon until your party gets like half health and then you have to leave because you have to get back to the town in one piece. If you die, the game will reload from the last point you saved, which it only saves when you're in town. Oh, geez. <laughs> so you're constantly like close to like your objective and goal and then being like, I have to turn around and that's the worst feeling. And then you, you're fighting tons of battles on the way back to town. It's just so demoralizing. It's such a weird system. The saving system in general, I feel like, could be really bad because, like, there are some towns 
in the game where there's no place to heal at in the town. So what if you save there, your party's almost destroyed or low health, and then you literally can't get to a town where you can heal without the party wiping? You'd be kind of soft-locked. Right. Oof. It's so strange. Um, but I don't know. There's a lot of things going on in the game. The enemy variety is amazing. There's tons of different enemies, very memorable bosses. The leveling up feels really good. Like every time you, you level up, your characters get noticeably stronger. So there's a lot of good things in the game, but a lot of things I was just like, why is this this way? And maybe it's just like, it's old, you know, that could yeah, just be the answer. Yeah. Something else I want to tell you, maybe you've noticed this playing old games. I'm not sure, but I feel like a part of the strategy that was intended by the game designers for this game was for you to like go and buy like 99 health potions and take that with you into a dungeon and use because the health potions are super cheap. They work pretty well. Uh, you have tons of money and uh, it's just almost impossible to do without it. And mm. I just feel like it's not something where like we're cheesing it by bringing in that many health potions. I think it's intended. Like it's so weird to think that that would be an intended mechanic today um but i think it's just kind of how games were made back in the day like if you could buy 100 potions easily why wouldn't you so they're just assuming the player will do that right yeah no i don't know if i've experienced that but i, I mean that makes a lot of sense that's interesting yeah it's you know the first final fantasy so it's obviously going to have a lot of things that they've hopefully improved on in uh, the years yeah. to come <laughs> yeah some of those decisions definitely sound rough but i guess you got to give it credit for being 1986 right and mm -hmm. i don't know what else is we'll find out in the next couple years of the podcast i'm sure i don't know what else came out around that time but i'm pretty sure they pioneered a lot of that stuff so you know yeah, certainly um from what i've read it's like one of the only rpgs that was on a console at the time like I'm sure there were RPGs on home computers, but not. Right. I'm sure not everybody had home computers even then. So yeah. they really kind of made it go mainstream in some ways. Yeah. Yeah. So definitely deserves credit for that. Doesn't necessarily mean it's a incredibly fun experience <laughs> today, but I'm sure you feel pretty happy for at least having played it, right? Because that's an iconic yeah. game. Yeah, definitely. It was a, a decent length. I mean, I was playing it pretty much all week, like all the time whenever I could and using the speed up function, you know, doubling my movement speeds and the attack animations are so slow in the game. <laughs> but uh, it wasn't too crazy long. Like it was a nice little challenge for the week and uh, it was a fun experience. Like I'm glad I did it for sure. I'm not sure yeah. if I'm going to do the second one right away, but... <laughs> I'll do the second one eventually, I think. So very cool. It hasn't like turned me away from it. That's good. <laughs> All that it needed to do, make it so you still have some interest in playing the others. <laughs> That's awesome though. That's uh I mean, one that I think is much further down the line and maybe has learned from its predecessors that I've always wanted to play is a game called Chrono Trigger. Mm -hmm. So maybe I'll get a chance to go back and take a look at that at some point. But that's very cool. Oh, and guess what? There was a named... Uh, sorry, I was watching a guide and they mentioned a developer's name that I knew from our podcast, Nasir Gabelli. Nasir, really? <laughs> Programmed Final Fantasy 1, partly, I guess. That's great. Yeah, because we've mentioned his name a lot. We're going to mention him even more because he's uh, 
done some great visuals for Apple II games, I believe, right? Yeah. Making some great colors, and that's awesome. Where he's going to uh, be a name that we'll see down the line as well. <laughs> yeah, so I thought that was cool too. Very cool. All right, but that was what you know what I was playing. Was what were you up to? <laughs> well, I've been playing a lot of different things. I'm going to wait till maybe I have a little bit more time to talk about the big release, Zelda Tears of the Kingdom, and also another oh, yeah. big release, The Darkest Dungeon. Two, but since you had Final Fantasy One, I'm going to talk about a third game that I played a little bit ago. Just uh, trying to scratch the itch of knowing Armored Core Six is coming out in August and wanting a mecha game to play. I looked back and found out the mecha game on Xbox that I used to play. It was called Phantom Crash. I found a way to play it, and boy, it is a weird game. I mean, it's just yeah. like full on not super well translated Japanese and just like weird storylines. But then you get into it and it's got all of the customization you would want. You can make your mech have two legs, hover legs, four spider legs, or like all this crazy stuff. And they just kind of do away with sort of the mission campaign structure that a lot of, from what I gather, a lot of mech games have. And the whole story is basically that you're just in arenas fighting mechs. So you just deploy into the game, you're instantly fighting mechs. So I still have a lot more to play on that, but it's a fun game. It's weird. The graphics look a little dated as old 3D graphics often do, but it still looks pretty good. And I mean, you can turn invisible and slash mechs with a giant knife. So it's, it's a good time. <laughs> I've never heard of that one. Yeah. Let's go. I'm looking up some screenshots. Yeah, definitely a fun one. Got weird vibes. And I'm also going to see if I can play a little bit of Jet Set Radio Future. So maybe I'll be talking about that in future episodes. <laughs> okay, cool. But now I think we should talk about our special topic for the day. It's an interesting one that unfortunately there isn't too much information about, but it is a arcade system called the Deco Cassette System. And it was made by Data East released in October of 1980. And basically they were trying to address the problem of people who owned arcades were tired of paying a ton of money for an arcade cabinet. It's popular, makes the money for a few months, and then it loses popularity. They have to buy another one and then replace and move these big arcade cabinets back and forth. So they were like, what is the best way we can address this need and make it so people don't have to be buying all these arcade cabinets? And they came up with the Deco Cassette System, which basically is an arcade shell, everything you need to run an arcade game, but allows the operator to switch out what arcade game the machine plays using cassette tapes, which is a very novel idea, super cool. It's the first interchangeable arcade system, and there will be more in our video game timeline that we'll talk about. And they actually, over its lifespan, are going to come out with a fair amount of games, which I'm sure we'll take a look at a few of them, but none of them were really popular enough that the system took off. I mean, they were all like pretty good, but none of them were like Pac-Man, you know? So mm. the Deco cassette system didn't sell super well. And the few games that were hits on it were also sold by Data East in standalone cabinets. So sometimes people just bought those instead, <laughs> which seems like maybe a bad marketing idea. 
So that was kind of going as a mark against the Deco system. Another problem is that they had these cassette tapes and unfortunately did not realize how quickly they degraded or at least thought they would last a little bit longer. And some of the cassette tape games that you would buy would stop working after a few months because the, I guess the plastic films inside just totally degraded. And for that reason also, I mean, we're going to try and check out games on the system if we can, but there's not many of these still around. They're very hard to find. So we'll have to see how difficult it is for us to find emulations or videos of these games being played. But despite it not being super popular in the US, the Deco system actually does do pretty well in Japan. So we'll have to keep an eye on it and see what games get popular there. And it inspired other companies, including some Japanese companies, to try their hand at making interchangeable arcade systems. So we're definitely going to see more of them down the line. And the last thing I wanted to mention about it is that they had some great ad lines, like why convert one dead game to another dead game, just a straight out attack at other <laughs> arcade games. And one of their other ad series was a personified cassette with like a face on it that was walking around jumping into arcade cabinets to power arcade games and stuff like that. So it's a really cool idea. And apparently there are some further in history of video gaming that are going to do pretty well. But this Deco cassette system just had enough stuff wrong with it that it wasn't a massive hit, but it still does have a pretty big library. So lots of stuff we'll uh, take a look at for it. Yeah, I think I counted some 45 games over the course of the next three or four years, I think, of the timeline. So it's a lot of games, which is why we definitely wanted to mention it, because we're going to be talking about it all the time. And the other thing that just is remarkable to me about this whole setup, which I still don't really understand, is just how <laughs> different the games could be. I mean, there's like target shooting games, there's racing games and space games and pretty much any game you can think of they were able to do on the system. Like maybe not as well as if they, there was a whole cabinet built for that game, but right. like pretty well. And yeah. that's surprising to me. Like I feel like the technology behind it was really ahead of its time. Yeah, it must have been pretty well-designed hardware to be able to do all those different things. And uh, I do want to mention that, you know, you might think something like this back in 1980 would take ages for it to run a game. But apparently, once you plug the cassette in, it took it two to three minutes to read the cassette. And then it would keep playing that game without having to load the cassette again until you turned it off. So, like, that's not that bad, honestly. Yeah. But yeah, that is the Deco cassette system. It's pretty cool. And why don't we hop over to our timeline and talk about some games and the first game that we have that came out on the Deco cassette system.
Hello, everybody. Welcome back. Let's hop into our timeline and talk about the first Deco cassette system game that we have. It's actually a game that we've seen before. Ben covered this uh, originally. Highway Chase, aka Mad Alien by Data East. But this version is different than the dedicated cabinet version. It's got slightly different graphics. If uh, you don't remember, this is sort of like a mashup between a racing game and a Space Invaders game. So <laughs> there's other cars on the track, but they're in like a formation at the top of the screen and you still have to shoot them. Uh, but the cars look really good in this. I think they were kind of motorcycles or aliens or something in the, uh, the cabinet version. So it's got some different visuals, but in general, it looks really good. So hopefully we'll still get some cool looking stuff on this uh, cassette system as time goes on. Yeah, but let's move on to the second Deco cassette system game. This one also came out, I think, in December of 1980, although I have seen some dates around December. Um, but this one's called Sengoku Ninja Tai, but I think it was just known as Ninja in America, so I'm just going to say Ninja. <laughs> and um, this one's completely different from Highway Chase. Uh, it's uh, not Space Invaders or a racing game at all. I don't really know what you would call this game. I guess it's like a target shooting game because you're kind of moving around this cursor on screen and shooting things. But what you're shooting is very strange. <laughs> and uh, <laughs> I do want to say this game isn't even emulated anywhere. I only found like two YouTube videos of it online, but I wanted to cover one of these Deco Cassette System games. Some of the other ones that will come out next year and even beyond are going to be really big games that we're definitely going to cover. So I wanted to cover at least one of these uh, first ones. And uh, this one's pretty weird, though. <laughs> <laughs> what you're shooting is very strange. I think what it is is like you're in, I'm going to say, a pyramid that's surrounded by a moat, which is surrounded by a hedge maze. That's what it looks like on the screen. And this is a top-down kind of view. And you're firing bullets or a laser or something down at enemy ninjas, I guess, that are trying to storm, I'm going to say your castle, although it looks <laughs> like a pyramid, right? Maybe it's a pagoda from the top or something. That could be it. But uh, it's essentially a target shooting game where you're kind of shooting down these ninjas. But the ninjas move around so strangely. I don't think they're programmed to like go after you at all. I think they just have a random movement. And you want to just shoot them as quick as you can because more will spawn. And I think the ones in the maze, which is kind of where they start usually in the hedge maze, which is the farthest from your, I'll say, pagoda, I don't think they really ever go inside. It's just like they're just chilling out there in the hedge maze. But if you don't kill them fast enough, then people will spawn in the moat. And if you don't kill those fast enough, people will spawn on top of your pagoda or pyramid and start to climb it, and if any of them get to the top of the pagoda, then you lose. So it's a little strange because you would think that the enemies from the edges of the screen would eventually like go into the moat and then go in on top of the pagoda, but it feels like they're just random, and then all of a sudden there's people that have spawned in the moat or on the pagoda, and it's like it's different than the ones that started in the hedge maze where they all start. So it's a kind of a strange system of, of a game. And it kind of means that you have to take out the people like close to your pagoda first and then go for the ones on the edges and, you know, constantly go back and protect your base 
uh, from the closer enemies whenever they appear and over time you slowly get rid of all the enemies on screen and uh <laughs> that's how you win the game or win the round i'll say the game seems to be very slow paced in general and i was watching there's only like two videos of this uh, as i mentioned online and i think the uh person that was playing i don't know that they if they lost a life before like the 15 minute mark <laughs> it doesn't seem like it <laughs> runs very fast or is very difficult it looks more boring than anything if i'm being honest one thing that is a little interesting is that when you shoot a uh a shot down if it's in the hedge maze part of the map it'll actually turn that part to water which i think will limit the people in the hedge mazes movement so it's easier to snipe them but I don't know that that really does all that much, to be honest. They don't move that fast. They do have some nice animations of them kind of going through this hedge maze with, like, their arms flailing about, which is pretty funny. But yeah, that's kind of what the game is. It's more of a target shooting game because it's top-down, and you have this cursor that you're controlling, I think, with joysticks. Mm. And you're just kind of going, you know, hovering that cursor over where the enemies are and uh, taking them out. So it's... a uh, Kind of one one note, no real bosses or really any differences in between waves. Like the next wave just has more of them. So it feels like one of these games where like because the cursor is on a joystick and can't move with the same like speed or accuracy as like a mouse would, that it just starts easy and over time would just get to be impossible until that's it. <laughs> like I don't know that there's a whole much strategy or things you can do to really get better with it because of how simple it is so with all that being said let me get into my ratings i gave gameplay a 2.5 out of 10 um like it's not horrible i enjoyed checking it out for sure and i think it could be fun i think starting it as easy as it does definitely will give you your quarter's worth or whatever but uh, just doesn't seem like something you would play more than once, probably. So I couldn't go too high with it. Um, although, you know, target shooting games on arcade systems is not something we see all that often, unless you're in space. And this is definitely not in space. Is the, the gameplay field kind of reminds me of like, like I know the ninjas are ninjas because they're just like black sprites, but they uh, it reminds me of like um, those Japanese game shows where like people are trying to like climb a tower and there's like huge uh, boulders being thrown at them right, or something. Right. <laughs> that kind of is what it looks like to me. <laughs> <laughs> the theming's pretty wild, but it helps make the gameplay enjoyable. For graphics, I gave that a 2.75 out of 10. I think everything looks pretty good. Like the ninjas look good. The area around um, the gameplay field is pretty nice. Like this moat and then I mean, the pagoda looks like a, a pyramid. I thought it was, it was a pyramid for the longest time, but I think it is a top-down view of a pagoda. And at the very center of it is just like a woman kind of yelling and putting her arms up. So maybe you're, say, you're trying to defend a princess or something in this pagoda. I don't know. But um, everything's really high resolution. I mean, full-color graphics. I wish it ran faster, but everything looks really nice. So that part of the game was fine. For sound effects, I gave that a 2.5 out of 10. It's a little hit and miss. I mean, we have a couple small musical tunes in it, mainly just between the rounds. And then when rounds are playing, I don't know, you get kind of Space Invader sounds, I guess, <laughs> with uh, high beeps and 
kind of laser sounds for whenever you fire your gun. But uh, it doesn't sound bad. Like, it has a lot of sound going on and uh, a constant kind of beeping for, I guess, the ninjas just walking around in the background. Make sure that it's never silent. So it's not horrible, but it's not great. So I ended up just going two and a half out of ten for the sound effects. And for relevance, I had to go 3 out of 10. Like, I could include, uh, you know, the whole relevant score of the system itself, which is very relevant, but I thought that wouldn't be really appropriate here because this game's just so unheard of. It's not even, right. like, dumped in MAME or anything. The only video we have is, like, from some random guy's YouTube channel, which is in Japanese. So <laughs> there's just, like, none of these around anymore. And I guess because of the way the Deco cassette system worked is, like, whenever you got the next cartridge or a cassette that was the, like, hot game, you would just toss the old one, right? And it's not like you're tossing a whole machine, so they're not going to end up in, like, a yard sale or something you know it'll just be in the trash i guess so, right yeah can't say it's very relevant but overall i gave it a two and a half out of ten it's pretty weird it's not great um we've seen a lot of like threes and even maybe fours lately uh towards the end of 1980 here i don't think it's anything like that but um it's very different and very unique so i enjoyed checking it out for that reason nice hey i mean we always like weird games this one sounds like uh maybe the weirdness didn't overwhelm some of the slow pacing but yeah <laughs> or, or sluggish gameplay maybe but definitely interesting like you said seeing that sort of like target shooting type game on an arcade cabinet and just also the weird theming um i'm all in for strange gameplay <laughs> it reminds me of you played a galaxian game that was with ninjas a while ago yes yeah kind of had that vibe to it it's like Okay, I don't really know what ninjas are doing here, but it's different. Right. <laughs> I like it. Yeah, yeah. Well, cool. That's a neat one, and I'm definitely curious to see what else comes out for the Deco cassette system. It's going to be interesting. <laughs> yeah, there's definitely a handful for next uh, next year, and I think there's going to be some really good ones, too. So we will nice. definitely check them out. All right, well, let's go and talk about some other arcade games now the next one is one that i reviewed called zero hour by our new rising fan favorite universal uh they've been making some good stuff recently <laughs> and yeah. again as with everything in this episode this came out in december of 1980 and first off the cabinet for zero hour looks really good i mean you don't just have your classic wood paneling on the sides the whole cabinet it's decorated with bright colors, planets, weird alien monsters, and spaceships. And if that design doesn't tip you off, this is a Galaxian Space Invaders type game. Uh, and there was also a cocktail table version of it, and the game controlled with a joystick and two buttons. But despite this being a Galaxian game, it is also, in a weird sort of way, an Asteroids type game. Uh, so we haven't really seen those two mashed up. Or if we have, not well enough that I remembered it. But thankfully, Zero <laughs> Hour does a pretty good job of it. I don't know how I'm going to regret saying this, but I'm still not tired of Galaxian-type games. Uh, when they do it well, it's fun. I still love them. 
<laughs> and thankfully zero hour does a lot of things well but let me talk about the basic gameplay because with that mashup it is different than your classic uh, galaxian type game you start out in sort of this first stage where you have three enemy ships at the top of the screen that have barriers around them that periodically flicker on and off and your goal is to hit them when their barrier is down but before you're able to land a hit on all of them, they don't shoot at you, but meteorites, the flyer is very specific about saying meteorites instead of asteroids, uh, meteorites <laughs> <laughs> come flying down towards you that you can dodge out of the way. Or if you shoot, if they're a large size, they split into smaller ones and fly off in different directions. And that's the main links to asteroids there. But I mean, that's a very obvious at this point in time, like that's 100% inspired by asteroids if you're shooting something and it's splitting off into smaller pieces. Uh, so it's got that element there, but when you do finally land a hit on one of the enemy ships at the top with their barriers, when the barrier's down, it explodes, the asteroid phase stops, and three basically TIE fighters, uh, rip-off TIE fighter kind of ships, come flying down towards you in squiggly patterns, not exactly like Galaxian, but more in like a shape and they go off the bottom of the screen instead of looping back up uh, but they come down towards you and instead of just a measly two or three shots in a pair they must do one barrage is like eight or ten missiles so they really like blanket you with these uh <laughs> with these missiles as they're coming down at you and each of the upper ships with a barrier that you destroy i believe spawns three of the ships and then you have to kill all nine of those total ships before progressing to the next round and so after you clear a wave there's a bonus stage in between each wave where you have to dock your ship uh, because at the beginning of each game you're seen kind of taking off from this little docking platform and you get points if you can land on top of your dock and basically it works like a lunar lander type game where you kind of tap the thrust to slow yourself down I'm not going to question why you're slowly falling downward when you're very obviously in space. I don't know, you know, <laughs> gravity, something, something, but you slow yourself down and you get more points for the closer you get to docking successfully and how well you do it. And obviously not exploding by coming in too fast. So really it's a strange mashup of Galaxian asteroids and a lunar lander type game. Uh, but other than those features, it pretty much plays exactly like you would expect a Galaxian-type game to play. So let me get into my ratings now for graphics. Thankfully, as with a lot of Galaxian-type games we've seen recently, this looks really good. So good I gave it a 4.25 out of 10. It's got a twinkling star scrolling background with multiple colors. It's got the meteorites that are multicolored. And everything has this sort of perspective where the top of the screen is far away. So the meteorites get larger as they come closer to you, uh, which actually has an interesting gameplay element because if you shoot them when they're small, they don't split. But if you shoot them when they're closer to you and they're large, they do split up. And every time you break a meteor, which the meteors themselves are multicolored sprites with like weird bright orange and green colors, every time you shoot them and they break into multiple meteorites, they change color again. So there's lots of great bright colors on screen the barriers around the enemy ships at the top of the screen look pretty good a nice like flickering purple and as the enemy ships get closer to you they have several different sprites and they look pretty detailed and they're multicolored as well 
I also love how comically large the missiles they fire at you are, uh, <laughs> especially because they fire like 10 at a time. It's just very intimidating. Uh, and the explosions when you blow up the missiles and the asteroids and the enemy ships also look pretty good. Honestly, one of the things that made me the most excited about the visuals for this game is your ship. It's just a simple red and white, but it looks really good, really well designed, has nice colors to it. And there's actually different sprites for it being slightly at an angle when you're moving side to side, which I love because even like Galaga, which we haven't got to yet, doesn't have that. You're kind of just sliding across the bottom of the screen, but this you're actually kind of pitching from side to side and it looks surprisingly good. Uh, so all that combined led me to giving it a 4.25 out of 10. It's a surprisingly good looking game. Moving on to sounds, Zero Hour doesn't do as great in this department. Uh, there isn't really any music to speak of, but pretty much all the other sound effects are solid. So that left me at a 3 out of 10. Uh, it's got a simple laser sound that your ship makes, but you can fire very, very fast. Uh, so I enjoyed that a lot. There's also a funny like warning siren kind of noise when a new enemy ship spawns and lots of good explosion noises for the asteroids and enemy ships and the classic sort of slide whistle dive bomb noise for when the ships are falling at you so nothing too crazy but there's always sounds going on nothing really bothered me and it just was pretty solid Moving on to gameplay now, I gave it a 4 out of 10 here as well. It switches up the gameplay just a little bit, but Zero Hour definitely still keeps things very fun. The asteroids and lunar lander additions didn't really hurt anything. They just made it more fun for me. I really like the different sort of uh, tactics you have to use in the asteroid dodging section versus the fighting the enemy ships. I also think the progression of having to like hit an enemy when its shield is down to get to the next section of the round is pretty cool. And I love that you can basically shoot as fast as you can hit the fire button. Uh, your lasers are pretty simple, but they're just like these nice chunky pink beams. And so it's very satisfying when you're just peppering them all over the screen. Uh, and especially a game that has so much going on with all those asteroids, you definitely need to be able to shoot that fast. <laughs> what did you think of... Um... In this game, your ship can actually move up the screen. Yes, yes. A and that, different. that's an element that I haven't mentioned. But again, I think that's something it takes from asteroids that works really well in this because the asteroids can go at sideways angles when you shoot them in a bunch of different directions. And you kind of need that uh, movement up the screen uh, to be able to dodge stuff effectively. It can trip you up sometimes. Like when enemies are just shooting at me, I feel like I'm much safer playing at the bottom of the screen. Uh, but it's nice that you have that option. Just gives you a little bit more freedom. Uh, and of course, I think just the simplicity of the bonus stage, even though it's just Lunar Lander, basically, it really is like a nice change of pace, kind of breaks up the action a little bit, and a fun, different type of skill challenge. So I really enjoyed that. Moving on to relevance, I only gave it a 6 out of 10 here. 
I mean, it's a pretty great version of a Galaxian type game, but this game itself isn't super popular and I don't think very relevant. Really, the most relevant thing it has going for it is that it combines elements from two very relevant games. Uh, and it's part of Universal's catalog, which as we're seeing, Universal is getting to be a pretty prominent company, uh, but definitely not the biggest game in their catalog. So overall, that left me with a 4 out of 10. It's just a super solid Galaxian-type game, fun gameplay, great visuals, and pretty good sounds. And if you've never heard of Zero Hour, like I hadn't, you should definitely check it out. There is a modern game that's a SWAT game called Zero Hour. Not that one. The 1981 by Universal. <laughs> yeah. It, okay, cool. I don't know what it is with me recently, but I've been enjoying the many, many, many Galaxian type games that we've looked at, <laughs> thankfully. <laughs> hey, man, I think uh, we're just going to keep seeing them. So yeah. That's good. <laughs> Hopefully I don't get tired of them anytime soon. <laughs> <laughs> um, we do have a couple clones here, or maybe licensed versions of Zero Hour that came out in 80. We've got Zero Hour by Petico and Russell, and Zero Hour by Ender SA, which are both clones of the Universal game. And then we also have a game called Romar Triv by Romar, which is an arcade game, probably in 1980, but it's a Spanish trivia game. Uh, so not something that we usually see, but uh, interesting enough that we wanted <laughs> to mention it. And that will do it for us for arcade games for 1980. Wow. That's all of them. <laughs> Did um, them all. <laughs> uh, and uh, we have just some computer games to finish it out for the year. So that's pretty exciting. Let's start out here with another magazine, Interface Age, from December of 1980. They had a game in here called Mining the Asteroids in Color, which I think <laughs> is exactly what it is. <laughs> but I wanted to mention it because this might be the first ever magazine game for the TRS-80 Coco, which it was oh. uh, programmed for. Was it like a type-in game or was it a cassette? Yeah, so it was a type-in game. Very cool. Nice. Yeah, so good to see. I guess good to see <laughs> that that tradition is living on with the Coco. Mm -hmm. uh, next up, we have a game called Doolin Droids uh, for the TRS-80 as well by Leo Christofferson, somebody who we've mentioned a lot before. He makes all these weird TRS-80 games that have surprisingly good animations, and this is no different. It's a dueling game where you're kind of like fencing with two droids. It has great graphics, great animations, and great sounds as well. But still, it's a TRS-80 game, a little bit sluggish, so not something that we really wanted to review. Yeah, we're too busy with these other good games. Yeah, yeah, there's a lot of them. <laughs> uh, there's another one here called Dragon Quest Adventure, which sounds very promising. It's by Charles Forsyth and uh, published by the Programmers Guild. I have seen dates for 81 for this, but also dates for 80, so we put it right at the end of the year. It's a text adventure with a bit more story elements to it for the TRS-80, but I mean, we've seen some text adventures with graphics on the TRS-80. What happened with that? <laughs> I'll tell you what happened was the next one I'm doing is just that. Ooh, all right. <laughs> it's called the Tartarian, I think is how you pronounce it, maybe. Yeah, yeah. By the Highlands Computer Services Company. And this is actually the same company that made Old Dwarf's Revenge, which I think I did a, a review on not that long ago, a couple months ago. And... um. It is a direct sequel to it, pretty much. Same core mechanics. It's a graphical text adventure. So every room you walk in is drawn on screen. By the way, this came out for the Apple II 
and the TRS-80. Um, I'm not sure if it came out for the pet or not, but definitely on those other two. And uh, the kind of core main different mechanic that this game has in it compared to all the other text adventures is that you're playing as a party and you can switch between different party members like a strongman or an elf or a mage and they each have different parser commands that only work when they're in the lead for the party. So that was a pretty cool mechanic the first time we saw it in Old Doors Revenge and it definitely makes a reappearance here and is a big part of the game. But this game, I don't know, it's, uh, it's got some gameplay changes, uh, not many, and I'm not sure that they're the, the best changes. <laughs> I think Old Doors Revenge was a little bit more straightforward, a little bit more simple. This game, it really wanted to push the boundaries a bit. You know, mapping the, the maze out is a lot more difficult and tedious in this one, um, a lot larger. And uh, something that kind of, I think was maybe a response to the first game is that in the first game, like for instance, the wizard had one of the most powerful spells, I think it was just called cast or magic. And it could like open doors or attack monsters or, you know, get you through a variety of the different puzzles, which in, in both these games, some of the puzzles have to be done by certain party members. Like, uh, you know, maybe the rogue or I forget or thief, I forget what it's called, but you know, they can pick doors, right? But the wizard can also get you through maybe a locked door using magic, but they can't just spam magic because that would just kind of <laughs> ruin a lot of the puzzles. They wanted it to kind of be like, you have to kind of only use magic sometimes. And so they had this limitation where uh, I think you could only cast magic 10 times or use any of the characters parser words 10 times. And that may was maybe just seemed kind of arbitrary in the last game. So for this one, the way they framed it was that you have a party of 10 magicians and 10 thieves and 10 strongmen and 10 elves and like you can use their abilities as much as you want but as you go through this maze you will encounter just occasional random enemies it's kind of all done through text so it's a little weird but um basically they they will just die over time right <laughs> like there's almost a uh like a timer for how long you can be in the maze before your numbers get whittled down and uh you no longer have that party member. So you, you can't, like, they don't want you to have the wizard out all the time because then you'll lose all your wizards, right? So it's kind of a way to do the same mechanic but slightly themed differently to be, I guess, more in line with the lore of the game and, and to make more sense that way. But it kind of puts a timer on you being in the maze and forces you to reset and to kind of like bleed out as you are exploring the maze, forcing you to do multiple attempts on it before you can really get to the end. So that's not great. <laughs> but other than that, I mean, the game is pretty similar. You know, text adventure, the graphics are very similar. They're kind of these wireframe graphics. I think maybe this game has a little bit more animations in it. Like there's some times when you see like, it'll say like, you know, something's in the room with you and it'll actually animate like maybe a pair of blinking eyes or like a creature that kind of quickly runs off frame or something. Mm -hmm. And those parts are really nice, uh, but they don't happen that often. But I really enjoy when they're there. There's also a lot of enemies in this game because it is a little bit more of a combat focused text adventure, especially with this kind of party members are dying mechanic. So 
there's a lot more enemies in, in the maze and they all look pretty crazy. <laughs> uh, they're drawn, you know, similar to some of the other graphical text adventures we've seen around this time, which is to say not very well, <laughs> but um, they're pretty memorable. I think there's a vampire, right? There's like a alien looking thing. There's, I want to say like a crocodile or something. <laughs> uh, the final boss looks like maybe a minotaur kind of thing. Uh, if I had to make a word to it but it's just called the tartarian so it's just a made-up thing but uh in general the main goal of the game is you're in this giant maze pretty much or it's a dungeon and uh you have to collect essentially treasures but um it's like a certain number of different objects one for each of the classes and a certain number of weapons so that you can fight the final boss and live because like every class member has to have like a defense thing equipped and an offensive uh weapon or something in order to win that final fight so you're kind of just collecting things in the maze and then going for the boss and when you fight the final boss it kind of plays out like a cutscene, whether you win or lose so you don't you're not really like fighting anything it's just more like a you know this happened <laughs> so right. uh, the game just does some checks i guess and that's pretty much like all the combat it, it's not like the reason we say it's a text adventure, not a CRPG, is there's not really combat. It's more just like things happen and like it's like, okay, the mage died. Like nothing I could have done. I didn't make any rolls or anything. Like it's a lot more puzzly where it's like, okay, I shouldn't put the mage out when I get to this part or something. Hmm. So yeah, it's similar to what we've seen, but with a couple small tweaks. So let me get into my ratings for gameplay i gave it a 2.25 out of 10 i think it's all right i mean it's definitely a lot more enjoyable than most of the text adventures i'd say <laughs> one of the things i really liked about the first game and i like still here is that because each of the different classes has a certain uh certain parser commands that only they can do you kind of know what all the parser commands are like it lists it in the manual and you're not constantly guessing if I'm picking the right thing for parser commands. Like a lot of the puzzles aren't so much trying to figure out what the designer wants me to do at a certain part. It's more just like, okay, I need to get here first and then go there second and then come back here because that gives me an item that my gladiator can use to like kill something or whatever. So the puzzles I find to be just more enjoyable with a game like this because I'm not so worried about the parser, which is one of the things I'm most worried about. <laughs> um, but I mean, you still have to map out a lot of things. Uh, one thing that caught me off guard as I was reading uh, Ranga and Blue's blog about this is that a lot of treasures will only appear when you're holding certain things in your inventory. And as you know, Wes, inventory can be a big problem with these games and you're often dropping things oh, yeah, yeah. to make room for your inventory. So that's a big problem. <laughs> uh, you know, uh, don't have things uh, appear only when you're holding something. That seems bad. <laughs> but he figured it out. I'm sure I wouldn't have figured it out, but <laughs> he figured it out. Um, so there's some weird stuff going on. Uh, I think the game is a little brutal. Like there's times when you can just insta die or uh, again the ranga and blue noticed that th at one point in the maze there's a switch if you flip the switch it essentially soft locks your game so that's great <laughs> like pretty much makes it unwinnable so 
you know, not good. Don't put those things in the game, please. But uh, at least it's a lot more unique and enjoyable than uh, the vast majority of text adventures coming out at this time. And it's got some graphics, which I'll talk about next. So for graphics, I gave it a two and a half out of 10. I think there's a lot more variety in the graphics this time. They're not really drawn any better, but I just think there's a little bit more going on. There's always like something more in a room than just a blank hallway. There's like a box or uh, a candle or something, you know, it's like just enough to make the rooms memorable and it helps you not get as lost. So I thought the rooms were a little bit better. It makes you feel like you're not necessarily in a maze, which is what a lot of these feel like. There's a uh, more of a living world there. So they did a good job of really trying to represent a lot of the treasures and enemies and variety of the rooms. So for that reason, I gave it two and a half out of 10. And there is a little bit of color on the Apple II version. It has that kind of green and purple vibe going on. So it doesn't use it a lot, but um, just a little bit. For sound, there's some sounds in this game, but no music. And for what sound is there, it's the kind that really just scares you because there's basically <laughs> no sound for most of the game. And then like you encounter an enemy and a bunch of beeps go off. And you're like, oh my God, right? <laughs> what is that? So. It's one of those, so I couldn't, you know, I just gave it a one because there's some sound. And uh, relevance, I gave that a six out of ten. I, I mean, I don't think it's as relevant as the first game, but uh, I bet for people that played the first game and enjoyed it and they want more of a challenge, then this would be perfect for them. And I'm not really sure what the future of this company is, but I'm hoping if they've already made a sequel to their first game that they're doing well and will continue to make good games. So a little bit of points there. And overall, that left me with just a 2 out of 10. Um, it's an all right game, but, you know, bad sound effects, graphics are all right, and as many good things with the gameplay as bad things you know, so it's, it was kind of just an all right game. Not one that, you know, I could really play very well, but right. uh, yeah. it's at least uh, different from the norm at this time. And for that reason, it should be uh, celebrated for sure. Cool. Yeah. You know, at least they're taking a unique approach to things. They're sticking with what they started with Old Norse Revenge. Uh, and who knows, maybe they'll keep doing some interesting stuff with it down the road. Yeah, I don't know. We'll just uh, have to see. So let's move on to the next one. Yeah, so we've got some more computer games here. We have Thunder Road Adventure by the Programmers Guild, uh, which we are pretty dang sure is a 1980 release. And it's just a simple text adventure, but it did have an interesting premise where you are smuggling moonshine and avoiding the cops to make some cash. <laughs> okay. Yeah, they're getting inventive, not just fantasy anymore. All right, well, let's move on to some TRS-80 Coco games. Ooh, yeah. This is like one of the new big computers for us. I'm super excited for these games. For most of these games, we didn't have month dates for. So I think the Coco came out in either November or October. I can't remember, but I kind of put like maybe half the games uh, with that first group. And then this is the other half for the rest of 1980. And some of these games I've seen dates of 81 for as well. But uh, I think they were at least all developed in 80 for sure. So we can say that much. 
Um, but the first one here is actually by Aardvark80. That's a company that's usually associated with uh, Ohio Scientific and might even be Ohio Scientific, just like their software branch. So I'm not really sure what they're doing here. But I guess they're just porting their other games because this one was called Vampire Castle. And I think it came out on the Ohio Scientific computers and then was ported to the Coco. But it's just a normal text adventure with no visuals. But hey, I mean, the Coco's already getting ports. So that's something. Yeah, yeah. This next one, though, we have to talk about for a little bit because, boy, it's okay. just so strange. Uh, it's a game called <laughs> Dino Wars, uh, and this one was developed by Tandy, so first party, and it's a dinosaur fighting game. So, I mean, okay, yeah. Like Godzilla? Not even. Just, like, imagine Street Fighter, but T-Rexes. Okay. <laughs> Maybe not quite that fluid, but it's a wacky game where you have two T-Rexes fighting it out. But one of the most amazing things about this game, I mean, the two T-Rexes fighting are great, but is the super cool and ahead of its time perspective and arena that you're fighting in. Like, it looks like a classic fighting game starting off. You know, you have one of your, your guy on each side, but if you walk on the side of the screen, it scrolls the screen and the camera follows you and it kind of changes the mountains and the cacti that are in the background, that environment changes. And so not only can you pan that way, you can actually walk your dinosaur into the distance further towards the mountains and they get tinier. So it's like a full on 3D perspective fighting stage, which is just wild. <laughs> it almost feels like a modern fighting game in that sense. And I don't know, it's just really cool to see that kind of style this early on in 1980. Um, but then we get to the gameplay, which does leave a little to be desired. Uh, <laughs> you basically have to score hits on your enemy, but the only way you can score a bite on them is if you bite them when their back is turned. And it's a very slow attack, but uh, the game itself is a little slow. So I think that kind of... <laughs> balances out a little bit and when you bite them in the back they fall on the ground you can score even more points by biting them that again but they can also apparently counterattack you from the ground which i want to see how that looks <laughs> with two t-rexes the t-rexes themselves are just you know like these big single color 2d sprites but they do look definitely like dinosaurs i mean they're pretty good looking the scoring though is actually done basically as like an HP bar, you have a score of 100 at the top of the screen and you lose score every time you get hit. And I don't know if you ever gain score by attacking. So it's basically just a health bar, just worded a little bit differently. So the main way you can take damage and lose points is by getting bit, but then you can also run into the cacti on screen. And if you do that, your T-Rex will fall over, make a loud noise and take damage, uh, which is... <laughs> pretty funny imagining the dinosaur just being like ouch got cactus needles in my shin uh <laughs> so you know all of this sounds good in theory and i love the 3d sort of stage but that makes it really hard to line up with the opponent and actually bite their back like i saw plenty of times where the person thought they were biting the opponent and they just like weren't even in the same plane so it just didn't do anything uh so i imagine this game would just be a lot of biting and nothing happening if you played it with someone else. But the graphics are pretty good. I mean, there's nice bright colors. There's mountains and cacti in the background. 
blue and red dinosaurs that look silly, uh, but have like animation for them opening their mouth. And they have these big long tails, which are actually constantly wagging, uh, which is pretty funny back and forth. Not super fast, but it's still pretty good. And then lastly, the sounds. I cannot talk about this game without talking about the sound in it. For one, it's so loud. No matter what video I watched or playing the emulation of this, there's no way to properly balance it for what you were just listening to because it's way louder than you expect. Uh, the bite noise is this really slow, synthesized sounding roar, which is super loud and hilarious. And then when you get hit or you hit your enemy, it's like this sharp, high pitched, like yelping sound, like a dog yelping almost, except it plays a couple of times in succession. And it's just so strange, but it's like, I love how weird it is. <laughs> and that same yelping sound happens when one of the dinosaurs gets down to zero points and the dinosaur actually runs off into the distance and just runs away because it got beat. Uh, so really weird game, TRS-80 Coco coming out with some strange stuff by Tandy. So they were like, yes, we approve of this. Uh, I can't wait to see what else comes next. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, why did Tan why is Tandy selling this as a first party game? <laughs> <laughs> Alright, but let's move on. We've got another Tandy game here. Backgammon. I've also seen it called Color Backgammon. Um, I mean, played a simple color backgammon game, but you know, I guess every new computer needs it, so <laughs> it's there. <laughs> and similarly, we have Super Bust Out by Tandy, which is breakout. Uh, you know, and they had to put a breakout game on it. Hey, it's in color, I think, so Always yep. happy to see that. <laughs> and then the last game that we wanted to talk about for the TRS-80 Coco is also another game I did a bit of an extended mention on. I forgot to mention for Dino War, but that was developed by a guy named Robert Kilgus. And this game, Skiing by Tandy, was also developed by Robert Kilgus. And this is actually a surprisingly cool skiing game. I mean, instead of the classic top-down style that we usually see that uh, we just saw, I believe, last week with what Ben covered, which was a little bit more isometric, but this skiing asks the question, what if skiing was Night Driver? Uh, and it turns okay. out it's pretty cool. You have a first-person perspective. Uh, you can't see your skis or your um, whatever the things the skiers hold in their hands are called, but <laughs> you're first person perspective there's boundaries that mark the outside of the course that kind of curve in the same way as the night driver racing game and then of course you have the flag goals that you have to ski in between as fast as you can to finish the course as fast as possible you can control the character's speed as well as their movements left and right and then there's also a pro mode that lets you go super fast but your of course turning speed is slower when you're going that fast and the courses are actually randomly generated and you can randomly generate a course every single time you play so that their flags are always in different places and that it curves and goes up and down in different places. One thing I was really impressed with with the skiing game is the visuals. You know, most of it's white because 
it's a skiing game, so you're in the snow. It's an easy excuse to make the whole background white. But with the little pylons on the boundaries and the flags, they somehow found this really great way to, without doing like black outlines to kind of mark like snow drifts or slopes or hills, you can still tell whenever you're cresting a hill or going down a steep hill because the course and the flags and the boundaries in the distance will disappear and reappear behind white. So it looks like, you know, a hill is rising above it and blocking your view. And I don't know, it's just surprisingly, a surprisingly good way to show like height and going up and down when literally everything's just white and it's kind of covering and uncovering the elements that are on the screen. Uh, so it's very believable. Like I just looked at the screen, saw it was a skiing game and I instantly knew what I was looking at. So the graphics are definitely doing their job. Uh, and there are some nice colors there too, although it is mostly white. The sounds are also pretty fun. Uh, it's maybe the first synthesized voice on the Coco, and it says, get ready, get set, and then a gun fires right uh, at the start of the race. And there's also a very nice sound for when you cut real close to the flag markers, and it's sort of the iconic, you know, skiing, hitting the flags over, and they slap on the ground kind of noise, uh, and they just kind of nail that perfectly. It sounds exactly like I'd want it to. Uh, but it really feels like you're going fast, you know, like it does a night driver, which is great. So that is nice. it for our TRS-80 Coco games, but we've still got some more uh, computer games to talk about. Yeah, we've got one here called Tank Trap by Quality Software, which was for the Atari 8-bit. Um, this is a game where you have to dodge and trap a tank using uh, the trail generated from the tank, kind of like a snake game, but you're driving tanks and leaving like tire treads. A little weird, nice. but <laughs> seems okay. <laughs> And then we have Survival Adventure by the United Software of America. Great name for okay. a company. Uh, we have seen some dates for 1981 for this, but it combines survival gameplay with a text adventure. There's random weather effects, food and water, and the need for sleep. Uh, so pretty interesting. Everything you wanted for your text adventure was. <laughs> I'm still... Uh, what are, you, are you a fan of the like food and water bars in normal games, Wes? I have to ask you real know, quick. It depends on the game. Uh, I feel like you play a lot of those games. I do play a lot of those games. It can be annoying, but when done right, I mean, it's just a nice extra objective to kind of propel you forward. You know, you're like, oh, I need to do this, but then I also need to do this. And it just kind of keeps you bouncing from thing to thing. Like, I think The Forest does it pretty well. Okay. Uh, I generally don't like them, but... Uh, I can understand uh, that. Each their own. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Um, all right, let's move on though. We've got one here called Sunday Golf by Adventure International. Came out in late 80 for the Atari 8 bit and was just a pretty good golf game. But uh, I mean, we just played a golf game on the television not too long ago, so we've seen them all. <laughs> and then we have Scram by Atari. Uh, it, we have seen again dates for 81 for this, but it seemed like it was a 1980 game. It was for the Atari 8 bit and it was a nuclear power plant simulation game. Uh, but more graphical than text, which is nice. And then we just have two more magazines for you guys uh, before we wrap it up for all of 1980. We've got Computing Today, December's issue, 
which had a game called Cells and Serpents in it, which was a text adventure or RPG. I'm not too sure. It's hard to tell just looking at the code, but <laughs> and, uh, it was probably cool either way. And then we have the December issue of Personal Computer World with one game called Alligator Swamp by Norman Webster. And it seems like it's a game about catching coconuts in the swamp, uh, maybe trying to avoid alligators along the way. Who yeah. knows? <laughs> It's pretty funny, um, but that will do it for us for all of 1980 and for today. Um, I hope you guys enjoyed today's episode and we'll tune in next week for our 1980 awards episode, which oh, is yeah. definitely one of my favorite things that we do. Wes, so I can't, I can't wait for that. Yeah, same. Um, we covered a lot of games in 1980, but also a lot of games today. We talked about the deco cassette system and the first two games for it, which were highway chase and, and Goku Ninja Tai, which was a weird target shooting game, I guess, about preventing ninjas from climbing on top of a pagoda. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, you did Zero Hour, the last universal game of the year. They've definitely become one of our favorite companies and by this point. And I also did The Tarturian, which was a graphical text adventure with some weird party mechanics. And then you took a look at Dino Wars and Skiing for the Coco. Hopefully just a sign of the weird things to come out on the Coco next year. So oh, yeah. <laughs> I'm very excited about that and more excited to not play as many TRS-80 games. <laughs> <laughs> that is for sure. But if you have enjoyed listening to us as we traveled our way through the timeline in 1980, you got to join us for the rest of it because we are going to have so much fun stuff to cover in 1981. If you want to catch oh, yeah. up on anything, make sure to check out our website where we've got tons of information on stuff we've covered before. And you can also follow us on Twitter, where we post announcements. And if you have any questions, feel free to send us an email. And with that, we'll catch you next time. See you all next time.